<笑>鬼岛之音 ，Ghost Island Media。Hey guys, Emily Wai Wu here. I know we've taken a little bit of a hiatus here at the Taiwan Take. Today we've got a whole new episode. But before we start, I want to give you some updates from Ghost Island Media. We've just celebrated the one-year anniversary of our Mandarin show on cannabis. 大妈烦不烦 In the weeds with lawyer Zoe Lee. I love the show, and I hope you listen to it too. Over the summer, we launched an experimental show called "In Training: Shaogui Dendao," produced, written, and edited by our incredible interns. It's kind of like This American Life, where every episode takes on a different story: the lives of a K-pop trainee in Taiwan, a young creator getting inspirations of empowerment from female artists, a nightmare from when she was four years old. The show is mostly in Mandarin and sometimes in English. Check it out before a new season starts. Over at Metalhead Politics, where I host with rock star and legislator Freddie Lim, we are getting ready for our sixth episode. After which, we're going to take a little break. And speaking of break, waste not, why not? Our show on sustainability is currently on break, but we will be back very soon with a whole new season. And today. A very special episode produced and hosted by Sam Robbins, our former researcher on the Taiwan Take. Sam's been a part of the show since we started developing it a year ago. We miss him, but you can now see his work over at Taiwan Insight, where Sam is now an editor. Taiwan Insight is an online magazine of the Taiwan Studies from the University of Nottingham. And today, for his final episode with us. Sam talks to PhD student and Fulbright scholar Lev Nachman on the ins and outs of Taiwan studies. Thank you very much, Sam. This is your show as much as it is ours, and here it is. Hi, I'm Sam Robbins, and I'm a researcher on the Taiwan Take. I'm also a grad student at National Taiwan University here in Taipei and an editor on Taiwan Insight, an online magazine from the University of Nottingham. I'm your host for this special edition of the Taiwan Take. Today, we take a look at the academic world of Taiwan studies from the perspective of one Fulbright scholar, PhD candidate, and prolific Twitterer, Lev Nachman. Because I was so interested in Taiwan, my entire desire to get a PhD was based off of you know studying Taiwanese politics.、Uh, and one of my professors pushed back against me, saying that you know if you write Taiwan on a PhD application, it's career suicide. You're not going to get in anywhere because no one's going to take someone who says they want to specialize in Taiwan.、Uh, and that was really frustrating advice to get. Originally born in Nebraska, Lev is in the political science department at UC Irvine, studying small parties in Taiwan and Hong Kong. Academia and Taiwan studies are global, and this is the Taiwan Take. Welcome to a new episode. It's great to finally get you on the show, Lev. Thank you so much for having me. So, Lev, this has been a big year for Taiwan, right? We've had the election, we've had the global pandemic. There's been a lot of international coverage on Taiwan, so it's been great for us. We've been researching and writing about Taiwan. So, you know, how's it been for you this last year? 
it's been a totally wild year, and I feel incredibly lucky uh, and very privileged to have picked a research topic that is so relevant in 2020 and to have chosen this year of all years to be in Taiwan to conduct fieldwork. There's been so much demand internationally for what seems like the first time in a long time for people to have more contemporary knowledge about Taiwanese politics beyond just cross-strait relations, what Taiwan has to do with China. Of course, the biggest moment for you over this last year has been your tweet on boba pizza. You know, that's been your most viral moment. So, Lev, as an academic, how does it feel knowing that a tweet about boba pizza is going to be your most read thing for your whole career? Honestly, I am just thrilled that it uh, it went as big as it did. I mean, I was laughing the entire time. Uh, you know, boba is one of those things that everyone really loves around the world right now, but so many people don't know that it comes from Taiwan. And if a totally out-of-the-blue ridiculous tweet about me eating boba pizza gets Taiwan a little bit more positive coverage, then, then worth it. So let's go back to the start. So a lot of people who are writing about Taiwan now get into it from, through China studies in, in one way or another. But you're originally from Omaha, Nebraska. You first came here in 2012, and you actually have some family connections here. You have a cousin out here, right? My whole uh, connection to Taiwan actually goes back to when I first started studying Mandarin in college. So originally, uh, I wanted to study Japanese. And when I was a freshman in college, I had you know, managed to pass out of Japanese 101 and had to wait till the next semester to take Japanese 102. But because I had to take a language requirement, I thought it would be really fun to take Mandarin because I have Taiwanese family. So my uncle lived in Taiwan for 20, 30 years. Uh, he owns a motorcycle ski equipment parts company based in the U.S. and in Taiwan. And his wife is Taiwanese, and my cousins are Taiwanese-American. Uh, some of them live in the U.S., some of them live in Taiwan. And I'm very close with my aunt and uncle and my cousins. So when it came to learn Mandarin, I thought they would get a kick out of me being able to speak some Mandarin. I didn't expect to, but I absolutely fell in love with learning Mandarin. Uh, and it ended up becoming my major. And when it came time to study abroad, it was an obvious choice to me that I wanted to go to Taiwan because the entire reason for learning Mandarin was really because of the obscure Taiwan connection I had in my family. So um, as we know, a lot of... U.S. universities don't really have many programs covering Taiwan. So as an undergrad, did you get much chance to study or learn about Taiwan? So I had uh, two very different experiences. The first one is my freshman year of college. I went to Kansas University. And when I was at KU, we had a Confucian Institute, uh, which meant that there was hardly any discussion of Taiwan because the curriculum at Confucian Institutes are very China-centric. Uh, and there is not a lot of space for there to be anything other than their very China-centric way of teaching Chinese, which is fine. It worked for a lot of Chinese language learners. But because I was really interested in Mandarin because of Taiwan, there was always a frustration that there wasn't really much of a Taiwan side to it. I transferred my sophomore year of college to the University of Puget Sound, a small liberal arts college in Tacoma, Washington. Their Mandarin language program was run by two Taiwanese professors. So... They had a not only specific interest in Taiwan, but they had special study abroad programs for Taiwan. And when I was in junior year of college, we studied abroad a group of students from Puget Sound to Donghai University. And that was in 2012. That was the first time I came to Taiwan. So I want to jump forward to 2014, which is when the Sunflower Movement took place here in Taiwan, which was a big event and led to the formation of the political party that has become the subject of your PhD thesis. Um, so where were you when the movement took place? 
So I left Taiwan at the end of 2013, which is a very frustrating time for me to leave because Sunflower happened very soon after in 2014. When I first lived in Taiwan, I knew very little about Taiwanese politics. But by circumstance, I ended up becoming very close uh, with a group of Taiwanese activists based in Taichung who gave me a very intense crash course about Taiwanese politics, about Taiwanese activism. All of them, including other activist friends that I eventually made in Taipei, they were all involved in Sunflower. So I had to watch them involved with this you know, watershed moment uh, in Taiwanese political history through a live stream back in the United States. It really kind of motivated me into getting even more interested in Taiwanese politics, in social activism, in social movements. I really started to think after Sunflower whether or not this was something I wanted to run with and consider grad school and whether or not I would want to go into academia. The year after, I ended up applying for master's programs with the specific goal of wanting to focus more on Taiwanese politics. Great. So you have this big interest in Taiwan politics. You saw all this exciting things going on. You applied on a master's program and you, of course, end up in Nanjing, China. Love, I have to ask you, did you realize that the capital of the Republic of China actually had moved by that point? Yeah. So <laughs> it's definitely a big, uh, a big mystery to a lot of people how I go from being someone to Taiwan studies to ending up in, uh, in China. I was interested in getting my PhD when I was an undergrad. But to go straight from undergrad to a R1 PhD program is very difficult. What I kind of talked to with my advisors was that it would be smart of me to consider getting my master's first. Plus, I would be able to kind of dip my toes into what the academic world is like. Uh, and of course, all I wanted to do was go back to Taiwan. But in order to get into a, a PhD program in the United States, it's usually very important that if you have a master's, it come from a U.S. institution. Even though all I wanted to do was go back to Taiwan, I had an option, which was the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, commonly called SICE. They have a campus at Nanjing University that's joint run with Nanjing University and SICE. Uh, I applied for the master's program there, still with the intention of studying Taiwan, but at the very least, I would be able to get my master's degree from an American accredited university. And in terms of proximity, I would be much closer to Taiwan than I would be if I was in the United States. As we know, China wasn't super stoked on the Sunflower Movement. And the research coming out of China about Taiwan is, you know, a little... Biased. A little biased, maybe, maybe. So uh, you were writing about Taiwan in, in Nanjing. What was that like? So it's important to note that the Hopkins Nanjing program, one of the reasons it's very special is that it has guaranteed academic freedom in China. Because it's run by SICE and because of an agreement they made with the Chinese government when it first opened 30 years ago... Topics that are normally taboo or not allowed at most universities in China are allowed to be researched at Hopkins Nanjing. My master's thesis was on the Sunflower Movement and specifically social activist perceptions of politics. So why did social activists feel the way they did about certain issues within Sunflower? Which in China would be controversial because a lot of what was going on with Sunflower was very pro-independence, very critical of China, very critical of the KMT. I was incredibly lucky that there was a Taiwan scholar who was helping to co-run the Hopkins Nanjing Center. So at, at HNC, there's a China side and a U.S. side. And the U.S. director's name was Neil Kubler, uh, who's a fantastic linguist. 
you know, he's done China studies and Taiwan studies for forever, but he's, he's very sympathetic to Taiwan. And other professors as well vouched for me and made sure that I was able to do my topic without being interrupted or being censored uh, in any way. And I feel very lucky that Hopkins Nanjing was able to provide this kind of opportunity for me. And I did have a Chinese advisor at HNC who had no problem with me studying Taiwan. He himself was a uh, professor of ethnic minorities in China. So to him, he used to joke with me that, you know, you think Taiwan is controversial. I can, I can show you some controversial topics. So, you know, you've told us you had a lot of freedom. You're allowed to research Taiwan, you know, professors that were on your side. But at the same time, there were others in that institute that were telling you that if you go into Taiwan studies, that'll be career suicide for you. Right. So when it came time to applying to PhDs, uh, it was a very difficult moment where I had to really decide what it is I wanted to say that I was doing. I was so interested in Taiwan, my entire desire to get a PhD was based off of, you know, studying Taiwanese politics that I wanted to write on my application. I want to study political science and my area of interest is Taiwan. And one of my professors at HNC pushed back against me saying that, you know, if you write Taiwan on a PhD application, it's career suicide. You're not going to get in anywhere because no one's going to take someone who says they want to specialize in Taiwan. You would be better off saying you want to study China. This is a very common theme amongst young Taiwan scholars is we're constantly told that we should take Taiwan studies, put it on the back burner, focus on a more attractive project, something China related, because that way we'll get more grant money, we'll have better odds at the job market, it will be taken more seriously within academia, across disciplines and fields. Uh, and that was really frustrating advice to get. In the end, I ended up putting Taiwan on my PhD application because I think it's really important. And one of the biggest pieces of advice I give to people interested in getting a PhD is you should only get a PhD in a topic that you are genuinely passionate and interested in and about. Otherwise, you will be uh, miserable trying to research something that you really don't have your heart in. Great. So, so you got accepted into UC Irvine and you're in the political science department there. And um, your supervisor actually doesn't specialize in Taiwan. He doesn't even specialize in Asia at all. He's a Eastern European specialist, I think. Right. So how did you sell him on your project and how did you how do you talk Taiwan to him? Right. So my, my dissertation chair, Jeff Kopstein, has been incredibly supportive of me doing a Taiwan project because I've been able to take this topic and make it much more approachable to someone who has no knowledge of East Asia. In social sciences, that's a really important skill and what you often have to do regardless of what country you study. We call it generalizability. So the idea of talking about a country but making what you're talking about more broadly applicable to other countries. So another important part is my advisor is also very interested in political sociology, which is the same kind of subdiscipline that I'm interested in. And so even though he doesn't know East Asia as well, when we talk about my methods, when we talk about my research questions or kind of the big takeaways from my project, uh, he's actually able to give fantastic advice and guidance along these lines, even though he has no direct connection to East Asia. How's it been, you know, talking Taiwan to other people in academia? So one of the biggest ways that I've actually been able to pitch Taiwan in academia is not in a China context but rather looking for more disciplinary avenues such as peace and security studies, studies of democracy, both of which Taiwan easily falls into. And I'm very fortunate that UC Irvine has 
departments for both of these topics, and they give funding for graduate students who want to study these topics. You know, just at UC Irvine alone, when I go to these funding opportunities and I say, hey, I'm interested in Taiwan, they say, great, that's a great case that we don't think about very often, and it totally falls within the study of democracy, and it totally falls within the study of peace and security. Even though Taiwan might not be as easily considered a important topic in a China studies department, I'm able to get a lot of extra support from unexpected places. So another big piece of advice I have for people who are interested in Taiwan studies is to think outside the box and to think outside of a China-centric framework and realize that Taiwan is actually very interesting to so many other parts of academia, you just have to pitch it to them. And Lev, your thesis is actually comparing Taiwan and Hong Kong. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Right. So my interest in Hong Kong started because of the Umbrella Movement, which happened the same year as the Sunflower Movement. And when I was writing my kind of dissertation proposal and thinking through kind of my broader area of interest, Hong Kong became such a obvious comparison. Both movements shared so many of the same underlying features, causes, values, and for me, outcomes. So I'm specifically interested in political parties that form out of social movements and both Sunflower and Umbrella produced a whole new cohort of political parties out of social movements. Hey, Emily Wai Wu here, producer of The Taiwan Take. You've been listening to our conversation with Fulbright Research Fellow and PhD candidate Lef Nachman on the ins and outs of Taiwan studies. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support us by donating to our Patreon. We are at patreon.com slash Taiwan. And now, back to the chat. So there's a lot of interesting connections and research that can be done about Taiwan and how it connects to other parts of the world. But still, Taiwan studies and Taiwan in a lot of departments still has this, you know, China studies, Taiwan studies issue, Right. Because some China studies programs might talk about Taiwan, but you only get a week or two about Taiwan. But when universities try to run programs just about Taiwan, not that many students sign up. And previously, you've written about this lose-lose situation for Taiwan studies. So, Yeah, so one of the biggest issues that Taiwan studies currently has is we don't know whether or not we want our future to be separate from China studies and have our own unique Taiwan departments or whether or not we want to be situated within China studies. I think I've heard this somewhere before. So the big, <laughs> the big problem is China studies departments are incredibly well-funded, and they're able to give us way more opportunities and resources, but at the expense of not really having many opportunities for Taiwan to be the focus of attention. Like you just said, there might be a class on... Chinese politics, but there's really only going to be a week maybe on Taiwan, and it's going to be very cross-strait-centric and very much focused on KMT-CCP relations. And that's fine, that's important, but that leaves out so much more to what Taiwan can offer in terms of democratization, institutions, social movements. There's no time for that in a China studies-centric Taiwan program. On the other hand, if Taiwan studies is separate, it's very hard to sell a Taiwan politics class to people who know nothing about Taiwan. That's what I mean by a lose-lose situation is if we go to the place with more funding opportunities and potentially more outreach, we get less Taiwan. If we go kind of the separate route and we try to make it a just Taiwan program, we lose the ability to really reach a lot of people. 
Uh, and there's no good solution to this. It's something that I think a lot of Taiwan studies programs are currently grappling with. And it's definitely something I will have to be thinking about for most of my academic career. One of the solutions that I'd say we've seen over the last 10, 20 years or so is kind of Taiwan studies institutions linking up with each other. We've got this North American Taiwan Studies Association. We've got the European Association of Taiwan Studies. And perhaps, you know, what you've got to do in a lose-lose situation is you've just got to rally and make those connections within yourself and, you know, share the resources as much as you can. So, Yeah, and the best part about Taiwan Studies is because we are fairly small and so connected is we really have each other's backs in a way that I don't think other regional studies groups do. One of my favorite parts about Taiwan Studies conferences is how gung-ho everyone is there to talk about Taiwan and just how much of a wonderful community that Taiwan Studies is building all around the world. So you have EATS, you have NATSA, and you have more and more programs within specific universities being developed just for Taiwan Studies. The hope is that these programs can stay funded, that they can grow, and importantly, that students take these classes and that we're building an interest in Taiwan. Ideally, we're building an interest in Taiwan that isn't solely about China as well. Yeah, so it's great that we have this community and we've all got each other's back. And But at the same time, one of the problems with area studies is everyone's kind of doing their own thing. You know, you're studying Taiwan politics. I'm studying the Taiwanese internet. Sometimes at these conferences, I see someone who's studying, you know, Japanese or Taiwanese literature. And I'm just like, I just don't know what to say to you. It's super fair. So one of the big challenges with area studies is that it's area first, discipline second. And that's okay. Because in academia, there is room for both of these conversations to be happening at the same time. We can talk about Taiwan as a unique case in that academic setting, and then I can go off to a political science conference and talk with other political scientists about poli-sci and how Taiwan is interesting to poli-sci. You know, one of the important things that you have to be able to do as an academic is speak to multiple audiences. And one of the reasons I think Taiwan studies is actually very valuable is it really forces you to be able to do that. Because Taiwan studies, more so than China studies, you have to doubly justify why Taiwan matters in almost every academic talk you give. Versus China studies, United States, no one asks you, like, why should I care about China politics? It's pretty given. Uh, but when it comes to talking about Taiwan, even in an academic setting, you really have to justify why this matters to so many people. So because we spend so much time in area studies conferences talking to people that might not be from our same discipline but share the same region as us, uh, we learn to pitch our research to a, a wider audience and we learn to talk to other parts of academia. You know, For me, at least, that's been a skill that Taiwan studies has taught me that I haven't really gotten anywhere else. So, Love, we've talked about studying Taiwan. Now we're talking about Taiwan studies. In a way, you know, those aren't exactly the same thing. And what do we mean when we're talking about Taiwan studies? That's a good point and a good question. So just because someone has Taiwan in a article does not make it a Taiwan studies article, nor does that necessarily make them a Taiwan scholar, which is fine. I mean, especially in political science, you have plenty of articles that cover lots of countries all at once. And I don't think the authors are usually offended by them not being experts on every single one of those countries. But what makes a Taiwan piece Taiwan studies, it's often self-described or, you know, there, there's no official metric about how much of a research topic has to be about Taiwan. I think it's really just where is Taiwan oriented within the project? So is it front and center? Is it one of the key cases? Is it just one of many cases? I think the more focused Taiwan gets, the more Taiwan studies it becomes, because the more you have to know about Taiwan and the more you're researching Taiwan, 
based off of its kind of presence within the larger research question. So another way to think about Taiwan studies, it's a continuing academic conversation about Taiwan. You've talked a bit about where your research fits into that conversation, but can you tell us more about what other conversations are happening within Taiwan studies at the moment? So the way that I describe my place in Taiwan studies is I am an expert on the years 2013 to 2016, and that's pretty much the most in-depth knowledge that I have tracing before the Sunflower Movement to the first presidential election after the Sunflower Movement. Of course, I still have to do a lot of political tracing through democratization. So my own research takes me all the way back through martial law era and when a lot of resistance against martial law started the rise of the DPP and the Deng Wai. That's obviously very central to my own research as well. But really, you know, my contribution at least is filling in just these few years within kind of the broader history of Taiwan studies. And that's what academia is, is finding these really, really, really niche things and just, you know, putting your little contribution is. There's a, there's a great professor at UC Irvine uh, named Bernie Grofman who once said that the world is a giant puzzle. And if in academia you can add one piece to that puzzle, then you will have had a successful academic career. But can you tell us more about what other conversations are happening within Taiwan studies at the moment? Right. So, you know, I'll talk about political science. The most reoccurring question we always talk about is what do voters care about? How are people identifying both in terms of individual identity and political identity? And how do voters feel about relations with China, how they feel about relations with the U.S., how voters are acting domestically? How are people participating politically more than just voting? You know, are people going out and protesting? What are they protesting? Are people not protesting? Why is that? Uh, you know, these are a lot of the kind of common questions we think about in political science. But for those of us interested in Taiwan, we tend to kind of zero in on these topics in particular because they're so relevant. Uh, when we look at Taiwan's history through kind of its institutional development, so how it went from being a loose part of the Qing dynasty to a Japanese colony to KMT martial law era through democratization and through today, institutions have changed throughout time. Why is that? How have they changed? And how has that impacted Taiwan today? So the last question I want to ask you about Taiwan studies is, you know, how does Taiwan relate to Taiwan studies? And you've been out here studying at National Taiwan University for the last year. In your opinion, how connected is the research here to this international Taiwan studies community? So that's a good question. Uh, and actually, when we look at the Taiwan studies organizations abroad, like EATS and NATSA, Originally, they were communities for Taiwanese grad students and academics in Europe and North America to find each other and to create a sense of community within Taiwanese academics abroad, uh, which later became much more focused about trying to build up Taiwan studies. But these organizations have really helped link Taiwan and what's happening in Taiwanese academia locally to conversations happening abroad in Europe and North America as well. You know, for those of us who are invested in Taiwan studies, we come to Taiwan often, as often as we can. And we have a fairly good sense of which professors in Taiwan are doing our similar research topics, and we try to work with them as much as possible. I'm very fortunate that when I'm here on Fulbright, I get to work with He Mingxiu, who's a sociology professor at National Taiwan University, who just published a book on the topic that I research. But for a lot of other people who may not be as connected to Taiwan academia, they might miss out on a lot of local academic work that's coming out here. 
So one of the goals that we also absolutely have in Taiwan studies is how can we better highlight what's happening in Taiwan and how can we make more connections to academic institutions abroad and locally. Um, so Lev, I want to take a trip outside of the ivory tower, which I know can be scary for all academics. But the point of accumulating all this knowledge and doing all this great research on Taiwan is that hopefully, you know, you can spread the word out and, and that it can be useful in some way or another. And you've been very active in the media over the last year. So what's your sense of how the Taiwan Studies community is doing and kind of spreading all this information out? So I'll start with, uh, I'm very lucky that one of my dissertation committee members, Jeff Wasserstrom, instilled a very uh, high value in me as a grad student that knowledge production is only so useful if we don't share it with other people. He himself is very prolific with writing for a common audience outside of academia. He taught me how to do so and how to do so in an appropriate way. And it's also been a lot of timing and luck on my part that I'm studying something that happens to be very relevant right now and that this year, more so than ever, there was a high demand for people to be able to talk about the Taiwanese election. One of the big challenges we have about media outreach is who can talk about these things and who has expertise to talk about these things. Um, obviously, there's always a push for more Taiwanese voices talking about Taiwanese politics in international media. And as someone who's not Taiwanese, it's something that I'm, I try to be critical of and reflective of. One of the challenges, though, is that when people ask for comments on politics, often there is a desire for someone from political science to respond. And one of the misconceptions is that there are no Taiwanese discussions of political science to a common audience. And there's actually a lot of really good quality content on Taiwanese politics for a common audience. It's just often in Mandarin. So there's a great blog called Who Governs? Tai Sitang Deng Zhishue, or Watch Out, is a watchdog group that follows politics very closely in Taiwan. Both of these places are really, really valuable resources because they're run by people with PhDs who study politics, specifically Taiwanese politics, and can explain so much of what's happening in Taiwan on a day-to-day -day in a very digestible, bite-sized kind of way. The one challenge is a lot of these people work really, really hard on these projects, but they're in Mandarin. So one way that I see my ability to kind of take a lot of the knowledge that we have in Taiwan is to be able to explain it to an English audience, often with international press, international media. Well, to circle back to the start of this conversation, you know, Taiwan's been in the news a lot recently. There's been a lot of great coverage over the last year. You know, Taiwan Studies relies on getting people interested and people applying to grad school and researching Taiwan. So how do you think all this attention is going to affect Taiwan Studies? Taiwan being in headlines this much is going to inspire, hopefully, more and more people to take Taiwan seriously as an academic topic. If you look at Hong Kong, there have been more new Hong Kong Studies Associations that have formed in the last year because of how prolific Hong Kong has become in media headlines uh, that I have to also hope that with Taiwan getting as much positive news coverage as it's gotten in the last year, that something similar should happen to Taiwan as well. And it's not just Taiwan and Hong Kong. I mean, hopefully more topics that people have not thought about in academic terms like Xinjiang can also be brought to the front of our minds when we think of what cases can we try to inspire grad students and undergrads to think about uh, when they become interested in academia. Great. So we've talked about what's next for the field. So what's next for you, Lev? So I'm currently working on my dissertation, uh, or as we say, I'm dissertationing. 
And slowly but surely, the really, really cliche thing that my father always tells me is that the way you eat an elephant is one bite at a time. So I am currently trying to make my way through this elephant that is my dissertation and it's slowly but surely. And it's still COVID-19 season and I'm incredibly grateful to be stuck in Taiwan right now. And I plan on staying here uh, as long as I can squeeze this out for because this is a fantastic place for me to be uh, writing my dissertation without having to have quite the same anxiety as if I was writing my dissertation back in the United States. Just before we go, do you have any book recommendations for our listeners? So I'll give four recommendations, two academic and two non-academic. So for those of you in academia, the two Taiwan studies books that I highly, highly recommend First is Humming Shou's new challenging Beijing's Mandate of Heaven, which is about the Sunflower and Umbrella movement. And the second one is a book called The Taiwan Voter. It's a collection of papers by Taiwanese political scientists that break down Taiwanese politics 101, uh, who is the Taiwan voter, how are politics decided here, what are the important issues, what does it mean to be blue and green. Very fundamental but easily understandable and very well-articulated book that explains what I think everyone ought to know about Taiwanese politics. The two non-academic books that I highly recommend, first is the always classic Why Taiwan Matters by Shelley Rigger. This is the book that I recommend to everyone who is interested in Taiwan but doesn't know a lot about it. It's the book I got my parents for Hanukkah. And the second one is the blog that I talked about earlier, uh, Who Governs, actually put out a book that also explains essentially why Taiwan matters and explains really, really cool topics in Taiwanese politics. It's written in Mandarin, but it's a great way to learn about politics in Mandarin if you're a, a Mandarin language learner. Uh, and if you're Taiwanese, it's a very accessible way to learn about kind of the bigger topics in political science and the terminology we use and how to better think about politics that you see in everyday life here. Great. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. This has been a Ghost Island Media production. Today's episode is produced and hosted by Sam Robbins. Editing by Claudia Shen, Sam Robbins, and myself. Today's episode was recorded at MyCoin, a Bitcoin exchange in Taipei, Taiwan. Look up all of the shows by Ghost Island Media by typing in in your podcast player, Ghost Island Media, and search for all podcasts. There should be five. Give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. See you soon. Bye.